Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. friends hope you're doing well today thank you so much for stopping by back in 1932 times was hard for everybody in this country the great depression took a hickory stick to the whole country and it didn't give a rip who got hurt or what happened i remember my grandparents talking about how tough it was folks resorted to coming up with a whole string of ideas to make a dollar problem was that not all of my ideas were legal, but I reckon going to jail beat starving to death, so going to jail, you know, where you could have three meals a day wasn't much of a deterrent back in. So in, on an afternoon in July 1932, Francis Pesqua, Daniel Kriegsberg, and Tony Marino sat in Marino's Bronx, New York speakeasy and had a drink to a plan that they'd come up with to make some pretty serious cash. Heck, they figured that the job was already half done. Uh, after all, how hard could it be to push an alcoholic named Mike Malloy over the edge to his death? Now sit on down there and let me tell you the story of Iron Mike Malloy. And old man Mike showed up at Marino's place and Asked for another morning's morning, if you don't mind. A few hours later, he'd pass out cold on the floor. For a while, Mr. Marino would let Mike drink on credit, but he'd stop paying his tabs. And Mr. Marino told the other men that business was bad and he's drinking up any profit I might make. Now, I don't know about you folks, but back in my running days, if I stopped paying my tab, bartender stopped pouring drinks. But if that's what happened, I guess I wouldn't be here talking, would I? Now, after hearing that, Francis Pesqua, who was 24 years old and was an undertaker, looked Mike up and down while he stood there pouring a glass of whiskey down his gullet and wanting another. Now, I think as far as that goes, we can all understand an undertaker being in the bar to begin with. That it ain't required, but dang sure helps, I reckon. Nobody knew much about old Mike. Didn't seem old Mike even knew much about old Mike. Uh, couldn't, couldn't remember much anyway. It looked like a pretty much anybody looking. He was just an old man too far gone to remember anything other than he'd come from Ireland. But he didn't have any friends or family that anybody knew of and no birth date that they'd ever heard him talk about. Somebody did hear him say uh, that he was 60 years old. Most of the folks thought that he had 
pretty much 60 the hard way <laughs> because he looked like walking death. Now, he didn't have a trade or any job beyond sweeping alleys or collecting trash and was tickled to be paid in any type of alcohol instead of money. He was pretty much living drink drink every day and he liked it that way. And then came the day in July 1932 when the undertaker Pasqua asked Mr. Moreno, since your business is going belly up, why don't you take out a nice big insurance policy on old Mike and let me handle the rest? Mr. Marino thought it over for a minute. Mr. Pesquad knew that he'd pull off a scheme like that once before. The prior year, Mr. Marino, who was 27 years old, by the way, had got real close to a homeless woman named Mabel Carson and convinced her to take out a $2,000 life insurance policy, naming him as the beneficiary. Now, don't ask me how he pulled it off. The only way I can figure he could have done it is to get her used to coming in and drinking and then telling her that the only thing that he needed for her huge bar tab was for her to put him on her insurance. That way her tab would get paid if anything ever happened to her. And uh, just in case she didn't have any insurance, which she didn't, he'd help her out with that. Just a matter of weeks after that came a horrible cold night. And Mabel came in for her usual drink or 12. After she passed out, like she normally did, just like old Mike. Mr. Marino, being the vigilant bartender that he was, took a turkey baster and force-fed her even more alcohol. Took her home, stripped off her clothes, doused her and her sheets and mattress and pillow with water and shoved her bed over to an open window. Now, temperature got down way low below freezing that night. Of course, she was found stiff as a board the next morning, still laying where they left her. The medical examiner listed her cause of death as bronchial pneumonia and hypothermia. Mr. Marino promptly collected his insurance money without so much as a question. Now that we know that, we know that Mr. Marino looked back at the undertaker and nodded his head. He nodded toward old Mike and told Mr. Pasqua it looked like he was all in too. He ain't got much longer to go anyhow. Now, the stuff was getting to him, and he's fixing to drop any minute. He and Mr. Pasquad looked over at Daniel Kreisberg, who'd been listening to the whole thing. The 29-year-old grocer and father of three had some mouths to feed, and so he decided that he would be in on it for the sake of his family. He nodded, and that set into motion the whole chain of events that might be downright funny if they weren't so serious. Now, Mr. Pasquad, I reckon, because he was used to dealing with death, offered to be the legwork, and paying an acquaintance and a, to accompany him to the meetings with the insurance agents. Now, this acquaintance was Nicholas Millery, and his occupation was florist, which came in handy in the funeral business, I reckon. One <clears throat> don't have to cipher too hard to figure out how they became acquaintances in the first place, I reckon. It took Mr. Pasqua five months and a dirty insurance agent to come up with three policies, all offering double indemnity on old man Mike's life. Now, two with Prudential Life Insurance Company and one with Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Mr. Pasqua then recruited Joseph Murphy, the bartender at Marino's, to identify the deceased as Michael Malloy and claim that he was his brother and beneficiary. If all went as planned, 
Murder Incorporated, I guess you'd call them, would split $3,576, which is about $80,000 in today's money. After Mike died, just like everybody who ever saw him thought he was fixing to do any minute now. Now, the gaggle of hitmen now included a few other Marino regulars, including pretty, <clears throat> pretty John McNally and Edward Smith, who everybody called Tin Ear, and even though his artificial ear was actually made out of wax, nobody was quite sure how he lost it in the first place, but it was still called Tin Ear. Then there was Tough Tony Bastoni and his sidekick, Joseph Mangelone. The hit night came on December 1932 when they all got together at Speakeasy to commence the killing of old Mike. And to Mike's delight, Mr. Moreno gave him an open-end tab, saying competition from other saloons had forced him to ease the rules a good bit. No sooner did Mike get one down than Mr. Moreno topped off his glass. Mike had quite the tolerance built up from years of the hard stuff, so he drank on and on and on. In fact, drank until Mr. Moreno's arm got tired from working the bottles. Finally, he dragged his sleeve across his mouth, thanked Mr. Moreno for his hospitality, and said he'd be back soon. And, by golly, within 24 hours, he walked back in. Mike did this for three days straight, pausing only long enough to eat a complimentary sardine sandwich. Now, the gang were stunned to see the old man keep coming back and drinking himself completely out of it every day. They hoped that <clears throat> old Mike would finally maybe choke on his own vomit or fall and slam his head on the ground. But on the fourth day, Mike stumbled into the bar saying, Boy, ain't I got a thirst. Tough Tony got worked up over that and told him just to shoot him in the head and be done with it. Mr. Murphy offered up something a little more explainable if it worked. They would change Mike's whiskey and gin shots with a wood alcohol. Folks, they used that stuff to, as a paint stripper back in. And they were going to serve Mike full glasses of wood alcohol straight up. Of course, Mr. Marino thought it was a brilliant plan, telling him he'd <clears throat> give old Mike all the drink he wants and let him drink himself right to death. Mr. Kreisberg, who was the quiet one of the bunch, even said, yeah, feed him wood alcohol cocktails and see what happens. And they sent Mr. Murphy out, and he bought a few 10-cent cans of wood alcohol at a nearby paint shop and brought them back in a brown paper bag. Now, sure enough, right on time, in walked old Mike with his date for his daily fill-up. Now, Mr. Marino served Mike shots of cheap whiskey to get him feeling good and then made the switch to the paint thinner. The whole gang watched as Mike downed several shots and kept asking for more without a single sign of anything happening. Not a single physical symptom other than well, what you'd normally see with Mike having the tank full. Heck, old Mike didn't know <clears throat> that what he was drinking was wood alcohol, and I reckon what he didn't know didn't hurt him. He drank all the wood alcohol he was given and went on home. Next day, he came back for more. In fact, he kept coming back. Nothing ever happened other than a good stiff drink to Mike. Finally, after about a week straight of this, old Mike just up and crumpled to the floor. All of them sitting there staring at Mike laying on the floor, barely breathing. Mr. Pasquad knelt down by Mike, feeling his neck for a pulse, lowering his ear to his mouth to listen to see if he was breathing. The man's breath was low and labored. They figured that it would 
wouldn't be long now and decided to just wait it out. They say that uh, they sit there watching and rise and fall of Mike's chest, and they all thought, any minute now, any second. Finally, there was a long, jagged breath that, well, that must be the death rattle, they thought. But Mike just started snoring. He woke up a couple of hours later, rubbed his eyes, and said, Give me some of the old regular, lad. The plan to kill old Mike was starting to cost them all the profit they thought that they might make. What with their open-end bar and cans of wood alcohol and a monthly insurance premiums, it all started adding up. Mr. Marino was by this point worried that his speakeasy would go belly up. Tough Tony wondered why they were playing around with this guy and once again suggested the use of a, a, a brute force. But Mr. Pesqua had another idea. It was common knowledge that old Mike was quite the connoisseur of seafood. How he had had any sense of taste left after drinking paint thinner for a week straight beyond me, but apparently he did. Mr. Pesqua said, why not drop some oysters in pure denatured alcohol, let them soak for a few days, and serve them up with a side of Mike's special drink. They figured that alcohol soaked in oysters would surely cause an acute indigestion because the oysters would remain preserved and, and would uh, tap dance on old Mike's insides like Sammy Davis Jr. on a Las Vegas stage. And just like they planned, old Mike ate them one by one, savoring each bite and washing them down with another snoop full of wood alcohol. The murder trust, as they were become known, sat nearby playing pinochle and waiting as Mike licked his fingers and belched a horrible foul odor all over the bar. This is about to get downright fit for a deviant report, folks. Stick around, you're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, at that point, folks, killing old man Mike just become more about being determined they could do it than it was about any payoff. It, by that point, would be split too many ways to be much good anyway. Mr. Murphy was fed up with Mr. Pesqua's ideas and wanted to take a stab at it himself. He let a, a tin of sardines rot for about a week, cut pieces of the can up into, into it and mixed them with them. Then he spread it between two pieces of bread and topped it off with some shards of glass and served it up to Mike in a sandwich. Complimentary of Marino speakeasy, that was. Mike gobbled it down like it was the best thing he'd ever tasted. Then they all sat back and waited. Any minute now, the metal would start slashing through his organs and drop him like a habit. Instead, Mike looked around and Asked for another. Now, more determined than ever to gain called an emergency conference. They didn't know what to make somebody tougher to boil out. Mr. Marino suggested they do the same thing to Mike that they'd done to Babel Carson and said maybe they iced him down and left him outside in the cold overnight. They'd take care of it. That evening, after Mike drunk his fill of paint thinner, Mr. Marino and Undertaker Pasqua threw Mike into the back seat of Mr. Pasqua's roadster, drove him over to Crotona Park, and dragged the unconscious man through about a mile of snow where they put him on a park bench. They stripped off his shirt and dumped water all over it. Old man Mike never moved a muscle. 
Now, when Mr. Moreno showed up for work at his speakeasy the next day, he fully expected to hear the sad news of the passing of his favorite customer and friend, Mike Malloy. But that ain't what happened. He found Mike half-froze laying on the basement floor. Somehow, he'd staggered a mile or so back to the speakeasy and talked bartender Murphy into letting him in. When the old man woke up, he said that he had a wee chill and needed a drink to maybe warm him up. Uh, by this time, it was getting close to February of 1933. Another insurance payment was due. One of the gang, Mike McNally or John McNally, wanted to run Malloy over with the car. Tenier Smith tried to talk them all down, but everybody else was pretty interested in it. Uh, John Mangeloni offered the services of cab driver and his friend named Harry Green, whose cut from the insurance money would total about $150. Yes, that's how screwed up it got by that point, folks. They all piled into Mr. Green's cab with poor old Mike, who had another tank full of paint stripper, stretched across their feet in the back floorboard. Now, Mr. Green drove a few blocks and stopped. Mr. Bastone and bartender Murphy dragged Mike down the road, holding him up by the arms like they was playing tug-of-war with him. And Mr. Green punched it hard. Now, everybody braced themselves for impact. From the corner of his eye, one of them saw a quick flash of light and yelled, Stop! Mr. Green hit the brakes and screeched to a halt. Didn't take them long to figure out that it was just somebody turning on the light through the room in the house right next to the road. So they yanked the unconscious Mike back up and got ready for round two. Apparently, the paint thinner was starting to wear off about the time the old man Mike managed to leap out of the way. Not just once, but twice. On the third try, Mr. Green really stepped on it and headed into old Mike at 50 miles an hour. Mr. Green watched Mike get bigger and bigger through the windshield as he headed straight for him. Then he heard two thuds, one loud and one soft. The first was old man Mike bouncing off the hood of the and the second was him smacking the pavement after he landed. For good measure, Mr. Green hit reverse and done a little improvisation and backed over him, then pulled away, running over him a third time. The old man had to be dead now, but here come a car and scared him off before they could make sure. The men met the next day and sent bartender Murphy to do his part. He was supposed to be Nicholas, who was the old man Mike's brother, and who was worried about his where his brother had gone, and as a matter of fact, worried enough to start calling morgues and hospitals to try to find him. Nobody had information, nor were, were there any reports of fatal accidents or anything in the newspaper. They thought that Mike had maybe drug himself off into a ditch somewhere and died, leaving them without their payout because nobody found him. They went to check the area and found nothing. Finally, on the fifth day of trying to figure out well, just what happened, they gave up. In fact, Mr. Pasquale was already plotting to kill another anonymous drunk and pass him off as old man Mike just so the whole thing wouldn't be a complete bust. That's about the time the door to Marino's speakeasy swung open and in limped a battered, bandaged-up old man Mike. And looking pretty good for a man who'd just been run over three times by a taxi. Of course, the first thing he said was, I sure am dying for a drink. I expect everybody in the place looked like they'd just seen a ghost. What a story I got to tell you, lads. At 
least uh, what I can remember of it. Anyway, he said that was, he remembered the taste of whiskey, the cold slap of night air, the glare of rushing lights, then blackness. Next thing he knew, he woke up in the warm bed in Fordham Hospital, and the only thing he wanted was to get back to the bar and do a little drinking. Uh, on February 20th, 1933, Michael Malloy finally died in a tenement house near 168th Street, less than a mile from Marino's speakeasy. Uh, he died with a rubber tube that had been run from a gas light fixture to his mouth and a towel wrapped tightly around his face to seal it all up. I'm guessing that tough Tony finally got to take his turn. Now, Dr. Frank Manzella, a friend of Mr. Pesquaz, filed a phony death certificate citing lobar pneumonia as the cause. The gang received $800 from Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Bartender Murphy and Tony Marino each went spent their share on brand new suits. It had took them seven months to kill a man that was teetering on the brink of death and from alcoholism. The Metropolitan was one insurance company. There were two more policies that they weren't going to let go to waste. Mr. Pasquale went over to the Prudential offices ready to collect the money from the other two policies, but the agent surprised him with a question. When can they see the body? Mr. Pasquale told him, well, he's already buried. Of course, that didn't set right with the insurance company, and they started an investigation. It seemed that there was an epidemic of murder for insurance back during that time, and insurance companies looked at every death as if it was murder. Surprisingly, the first time the, any of the murder trust was questioned, they folded up like a lawn chair and sang like Ronnie Van Zandt on stage at the Fox Theater. Everybody pointed fingers at everybody else until the police got involved. That's what they didn't want. They didn't want the police involved. In case like that, you got to wonder what they thought was going to happen if they started talking. All of them faced charges. Frank Pasquale, Tony Marino, Daniel Kreisberg, and Joseph Murphy were tried and convicted of first-degree murder. The trial went so smooth and quick that it was almost like the ghost of Mike Malloy was standing over the proceedings during the whole trial just laughing his ass off. The charter members of Murder Trust were sentenced to death and sent to Sing Sing Prison, where they don't F around with poison alcohol and rotten shrapnel-filled sardine sandwiches. Like we said in other episodes, New York had an electric chair and wanted to get their money's worth out of it. Fortunately, for all four of them, they died in the very first shot. Now, I hope you enjoyed our story today. I know I couldn't believe it when I found it. If you did, please rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, and don't forget to follow us. I'll be taking next week off because I'll be attending my son's wedding. And uh, But uh, go ahead and join us on the Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast, where we can talk anything Appalachian or anything else you want to bring up. I'll be back uh, probably the week after next. And I'll see you then.